This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. Hey, everybody, guess what? The creative writing community is now open for membership. I'm so excited about this community because it is going to be dedicated to writers writing their book, publishing their book, and launching their book, all while having a good time and growing in their craft. Writing is typically an all-alone art, but you don't have to be a lone wolf and do everything yourself. In fact, I highly recommend that you don't, just for your own sanity. In the creative writing community, we're going to have live writing sprints, author hangouts, expert Q&As. We're going to learn all about the things that it takes to be an author these days and generally support each other in the craft. It will be a place where you can share your knowledge and learn from others and find collaboration and accountability with people who are serious about growing as writers. We're going to support each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, and be generally as committed to seeing each other succeed as we are to our own success. If you're interested in being part of such a group, head on over to catcaldwell.com and just click the pink button right at the header. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. This is episode 85. Can you believe that? We're 15 away from having 100 episodes. I, for one, find it like a really slow moving pace. And then it's almost there. It's like your wedding day. You know, it's not much to do in the weeks going up to it once you have the venue. And then all of a sudden everything needs to be done. That's kind of how I feel about this podcast. Like, I feel like it was yesterday and yet it's almost 100 episodes, which I guess kind of marks two years, right? So we'll be at the two-year anniversary, more or less, when we get to 100, which is exciting. This week for the podcast, I have Evan on, who has a podcast of his own called Vanishing Postcards. And I don't want to give away a lot of the story that he is going to tell But I do want to ask you before we go into his, into Evan's story and the story behind his podcast is what is your story and how are you writing it? As usual, I say writing because that is my creativity. But of course, you writing your story can really be anything. How are you painting it? How are you sculpting it? How are you representing your story? As we're going to see with Evan, our story isn't always about us. You know, part of our story is the people that came before us, the surrounding area that we grew up in or an area that means something to us. And so as I head into kind of the the second trimester of 2021, I look back on the first trimester and I see really that my perspective has shifted on what is my story and the contributing factors that used to kind of be the side characters where I grew up, you know, the people who were around me. All of those I used to 
kind of see as, you know, the the secondary things that sure had a part of my story, but weren't the actual story. And that can be true in one way of telling your story, but it could also be true that they are the main character of a certain chapter. There are tons of ways of writing your story, of letting the world know your perspective, who you are, where you're from, the people who influenced you, the places that influenced you, and digging into what we sort of see as the secondary players in our lives can open up a whole nother story. So I kind of want to encourage you to look around, you know, look back and look at more like a peripheral view of your life and see what you've seen as a secondary character and make it a main character and see what happens. You know, make the next door neighbor that you played with one summer and (laughs) never played with again. What do you remember about them? What did they do to influence you? What lingering things are still with you? I remember one girl in one of our houses, we didn't move as often as some people, but we moved houses quite a few times. She was my kind of only encounter with a Catholic kid, even though all my cousins were technically Catholic, but they weren't really practicing. And I remember the first time I was really introduced to Lent was through her. Like, I don't really have tons of memories of her. I remember she hated the sound of a toothbrush against her teeth, so she never brushed her teeth. (laughs) And I remember thinking that was really gross. But I was shocked when she told me that she couldn't eat candy for six weeks. And I remember thinking, I am so glad that I'm not Catholic. (laughs) And we were, you know, they had... They had two lots. They had bought two lots and their house was up on the hill. And, you know, I considered them to be rich. I don't know if they were or if just land was cheap at a, at a time when they bought it. I have no idea. It wouldn't be cheap now, that's for sure. But these are sort of these memories. And I think, you know, my childhood isn't just about me and what I did. In fact, that would kind of be a little boring to write about, but writing these childish encounters with people and how it influenced me for years to come of, oh yeah, well, Catholics, you know, give something up at Lent. Even though I never really looked into why or what adults are supposed to, I guess I assumed that adults weren't supposed to eat or something if kids had to give up candy and, and television. Now this was back at a time when, you know, candy wasn't really prevalent, but it also like was in the weeks going up to Easter, right? So there's a little more candy around and she had to say no constantly. Maybe I had offered her candy. I don't know. I just remember being so grateful I wasn't Catholic. (laughs) And that was kind of my first introduction to any sort of diet or fasting plan where it's like, oh, I don't ever ever want to have to do that. And that sticks with you for a long time. You know, fast forward to how many years later, maybe 25, maybe a little less, and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to go on this fasting diet 
And psychologically, I'm thinking, oh, I can't do that. Like the same thoughts, you know, oh my gosh. And I wonder how much of that influence comes from there, of that moment as a seven, eight-year-old or something, thinking, oh, I'm never, ever going to fast. I don't ever want to be forced to fast. I don't know. It's interesting. When you sort of allow yourself to think of these things, of what influenced your story and make them the main character, I think it helps you remember other things and just helps you see your life in a different way. I don't know about you, but my memory is pretty poor. So I have to really sit and think and go over journals and then it will come back. But it's, I don't reflect on my childhood very often. I don't live anywhere near where things will help remind me. When I do go back home, there are things, you know, memories will pop up that I hadn't, haven't thought of in years. So, you know, if your situation is like mine, where you're, you're nowhere near anything that reminds you, you might have to sit and think a little bit, maybe ask questions of your siblings or your parents, your cousins and say, what was the name of that person? You know, and just think and make them the, the main character. And what would it look like if they were the main character and you were secondary or what? What influence did they have on you? And just ask questions. And it's a fun little exercise, I think. See what comes out as a result. Maybe just something will come out as a result of where your head is at after you sort of do that exercise. So what has influenced your story? And how are you writing your story? I want to offer up to you some writing sprints And you don't have to be a writer to join a writing sprint. I advertise them often on Instagram and a couple other social media platforms, but I would like to personally invite you as a listener. We're going to have a couple of them. You can go to catcaldwell.com and scroll about halfway down and see a little place to sign up and you'll have quite a few different options and a couple different times just you know, to give some variety in case people are working different hours or in different countries or all the things that could influence the times that were available. Now, what a writing sprint is for a a group of writers and non-writers is that I'll have two prompts. Sometimes it's a poem, sometimes it's a question, sometimes we choose some fun things and then we'll pull a question out of that. You'll kind of have to join uh, me someday to see that in action. So when it's just with writers, we usually just write what we're working on. But these sort of public writing sprints come with two prompts and they last about an hour And each time we write for about 15 minutes, they can be pretty introspective, but you can also make them fictional if you so choose. There's really no rule to it. If you would like to check out a writing sprint, head over to catcaldwell.com. This will also be in the show notes and scroll about halfway down the front page and you can see it right there. It's not hard to miss. It is hard to miss, actually. And you can sign up. Find find a time that works for you. These are going to be free through the summer. And as I continue them, they'll probably go behind a paywall. I'm recording videos to go with them so that there will kind of be a go at your own pace. 
option, which is obviously always a little bit cheaper. And then there's going to be in-person options as well. But come get a taste for them while they're free. See how you like them. I've really enjoyed doing them with other writing teachers and have almost filled up an entire journal just in about three months. It's just fun. It's a fun, different way of... um, recording kind of where you are right now. Because in my journal, I have a certain writing style. And during these writing sprints, it's a completely different writing style. So I encourage you, whether you are a cake baker or a sculptor, painter, singer, writer, just come join me. It'll be fun. Also, if you are a writer and you're looking for a community, a place where you get together and have writing sprints where you work on your book, and you can also chat a little bit with other authors, hang out, um, get to know other authors in order to collaborate more. We just had a sort of teaching on Canva from one of our community members who is a graphic designer and gave us tidbits and tools and tips. And I've been on Canva for nine months and yet she knew way more than me. I've been pro for nine months and there were things that I didn't know, which is awesome. So it was great to learn that. We also are getting Pagan from Paperback Kingdom actually today when this episode comes out. And she's going to talk to us all about book blurbs and query blurbs, query blurbs, query query letters. Um, So we are learning from other experts in the field. And it's a really great way to write together, to collaborate together, to learn together and feel like we're not all alone. So we're going to have a couple other masterminds coming up that you won't want to miss. So head on over to catcaldwell.com forward slash creative writing community. I think it's creative dash writing dash community, but you can just click on it when you get to catcaldwell.com. It's right at the top in the menu. And, or you can just holler at me. You can find me on social media, DM me, say, I want in, I want to try one of your writing sprints. Those writing sprints that are kind of in the community where we work on our own stuff. You can come and join us one time, meet a couple people, see how you like it. We are super friendly and super fun, just saying. So all of these things will be below as well as Evan's podcast. I really want you to check it out because he is telling stories in a completely different way. I think it's really great what he's doing. He is telling a part of his story that has influenced him the place where he's from. You can also buy me a coffee to keep the show going. Christy, my editor, and I totally appreciate it because we got to stay caffeinated. Yes, because we have kids and husbands and Christy works with kids. (laughs) So we need caffeine. So if you love the show, if you want it to keep going, you can buy us a coffee The link is in the show notes. And if you are a creative and you want to get your story out, you can do that. We can chat about it. We'll see um, what you do and where we can fit you in on the podcast. Or if you know a creative who should get their story out, contact me. Uh, You can go to catcaldwell.com again or get me on Instagram or Facebook at catcaldwellauthor or dot author on Instagram. 
We are going to have some great people coming up as well, but I'll leave that for the next weeks. We have, oh, but I almost can't help myself because we have whole different creatives like glass creatives, glass worker, I think maybe is photographers, singers. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. But today I'm excited for Evan. So hold on to your seats, guys, because you are in for a ride. It's going to be fun. I really enjoyed talking to Evan. I feel like I need to go to New York and hang out with him. That's what I feel like. Like he's really fun and he has a really fun story. So without further ado, here is episode 85. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast. Today, I have with me Evan Stern. I'm really excited to talk to him. He has some oh innovative ideas on how to use the mediums that we have these days. But first, let me introduce you. Hello, Evan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to talk. Yes, I'm so glad that we figured this out. Let's hear a little bit about you personally before we go into your project that I'm excited about. Sure thing. Well, I'm talking to you today from my apartment in New York City. So I apologize if you hear any traffic or <laughs> sirens outside. That's just kind of the way of things up here. Um, I have lived in New York. So I officially moved to New York on September 30th of 2004. Um, the way that I remember that, it was the evening of the very first bush Kerry debate, which looks almost quaint uh, <laughs> yes, in comparison now. <laughs> um, but if you um, if you count the time that I was up here for school, I've been here even longer than that. Okay. So at this point, over the past however many years, I have probably earned the right to call myself a New Yorker whenever I'm in the mood to do so. At the same time, though, um, I am one of a proud few nowadays who can claim to have actually been born and raised in the city of Austin, Texas. I will always be from Texas. I am a very proud Texan. So, and I will probably die in Texas. So, <laughs> I'm probably, you could probably say that I am bicultural. And the reason That's for cool. my, yeah, the, the reason for my move to New York was pretty simple. I'm an actor. I figured it made sense to go to where the theater action was. So as I referenced earlier, I came up here for my studies. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Sarah Lawrence, um, which is a nice. liberal arts institution outside of the city. I moved to town very shortly after. And while I do view myself as an actor first in pretty much everything that I do pursue, interestingly enough, most of the work that I've gotten in the city professionally has been as a singer, cabaret performer, concert artist. Kind of the way that that happened was I moved to town. I very quickly realized that no doors were about to open. And I said, well, I have to do something on my own. And I realized very, I, I thought initially about writing a one-man show. I realized that in order to write a piece that I myself would actually want to sit through, much less other audiences, it was going to take uh, much more time or patience than I was willing to invest. And I figured, well, I can sing with cabaret. The history is there. The stories are there. And so I pieced together a show that was focused on the songs of World War II. Wow, um, I combined cool. it with um, all sorts of research and letters. I was very fortunate to get some good press and um, award nominations and attention out of that, which really kind of opened doors to, yeah. I've, I've since then, I've, I've, I've had the great privilege of working with some exceptional talents and some great venues, uh, Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall. But my most recent endeavor is uh, pretty different than just about anything I've, I've mentioned so far. I just launched a podcast called Vanishing Postcards. 
And it's a documentary travelogue. I, I do think I, it, it's a bold statement to, to make, but when I do look at my body of work, I think that it very well might be the best work that I've done. And yeah. I'm really excited to take this journey and just see where it all goes. Yeah, I think it is an amazing idea. But as you go through your story, you sound like a pretty innovative guy. Like, I have to figure this out and I'm going to figure it out in a different way. I mean, had you ever had cabaret experience before you were like, oh, let's do World War II cabaret? <laughs> Sounds good. Not really. I mean, I don't even necessarily come from that strong of a musical theater background. You know, really, I, I am an actor who sings. I took one course in college that was on song performance, and I had performed in a, in a few musicals prior. But really, I, I mean, I, I also always had a great love and respect for that supper club yes. cafe society world, which was fading in New York. And I wanted to be a part of it. Yes. I used to be obsessed with black and white movies. So we'll, we'll get back on the trail in just a second, but we just found a commonality here. So my parents wouldn't let me watch normal TV, like TGIF, whatever, 90s kid. I could never watch that stuff. We were allowed to watch AMC and Turner Classic Movies. You know, when AMC had like classic movies. I mean, I guess classic always changes, right? So I know all these movies. And my dream as a kid was to own one of those supper clubs. So like no one ever goes to dinner anymore. And then some lady in like this sequined, you know, leotard comes out and dances for them with peacock feathers. Like, how did that fade away? <laughs> I know it's a terrible shame. And if I were to be able to go back in time, I can tell you right now, no question. I would go back to experience New York in the Art Deco yes. 1920s, 1930s era when I could have gone to one of those supper clubs imagine? to enjoy a meal um, enjoy a floor show. I mean, that to me is my idea of heaven right there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You can walk from Harlem down to like downtown. I mean, you could, you could have experienced so many cultures. Ah, oh, yes. Nostalgia of the days that we never lived during. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that idea of World War II as well, because a lot of the music has faded. Like nobody really knows about it anymore. And I guess we can't blame it because the kids have new music, you know, but I mean, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and we listened to a lot. It was really good. Well, I do think that there is great emotional resonance to that music. I mean, if you play songs from that era to an old person, I mean, so often it's going to evoke tears. And yeah. I don't know how much music we have today that, you know, when I'm in my 80s, I'm going to hear and I'm going to have that kind of response. That's um, true. I mean, and I think also, too, I mean, obviously it was a horrible time that should never be romanticized. But out of that, people had a great need for comfort back right. then. And I discovered it first, actually, when I was about three years old and my grandmother would drive me around town and I'd hear Glenn Miller and all of that music. And it just had this incredible, soothing, comforting feel to it. And I believe that that's what people needed back then. Right. Um, obviously, our world is entirely different. And, and some of the changes that have happened aren't entirely bad. Right. But yes, I, I absolutely feel that that music has a great resonance and romance to it that is pretty hard to find nowadays. Yes, yes. It always amazes me how 
the arts tend to rescue us in hard times. You know, like they are so needed. And all you have to do is look back in history to realize how true that is. But I want to talk to you about vanishing postcards because this idea that you have is amazing to me. And I've already listened to a couple of episodes and it's like the quality is mind blowing. I think it's probably up there with Wondery, which is, I mean, <laughs> and you're just a guy out there trying to do your best, but where did you come up with the, this idea and tell us a little bit about where you came up with it and what specifically it is? Well, it's been an interesting evolution. I'm not certain if a few years ago I ever would have considered or saw myself going down this route, but I am one of those people who just fell in love with audio storytelling over Mm -hmm. the last 10 years. I think that that started for me probably with The Moth and just hearing people getting up and telling their personal stories. I loved that. Then you discover other podcasts like You Must Remember This, which is about classic Hollywood. Um, Then there was another one that I heard called Cocaine and Rhinestones, um, which is all about the history of country music. And as I started listening to that, it's this is kind of the long version of how it all came together. But I started listening to it and I've joked for a long time that I always wanted to be able to use the word summer and winter as verbs. I hate the New York City winters. And for a number of years, I'd been able, being immersed in the gig economy, I was able to find a way to sneak down to Mexico for like a bit of January. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be really fun to put together a podcast that was a musical travelogue of Mexico? Mm -hmm. I would use music. I would take a look at the music of the different regions of Mexico, use music as a way to exploring Mexico's cultural, regional heritage, all of that stuff. And I went so far as to go down there to produce a pilot episode. And it's one thing where you are writing in a vacuum and you are sitting there thinking to yourself, man, this is going to be awesome. You even find an editor together and you're like, oh, this is going to be so sweet. And then you sit down and you listen to what you have done and you think, I have missed the mark so terribly. It was a perfect example in show, don't tell. Uh, For instance, I talked all about the city of Merida. I talked all about its history, but you didn't really feel it. It Mm. was missing that kind of experiential quality. I also discovered I am a Spanish speaker. I speak proficient Spanish, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself fluent. So to establish that level of rapport where people start cutting loose and telling the good stories was going to take more work. And then on top of that, the human voice has such great color shade and nuance to it that if you dub over it with an actor speaking in English, you lose all of that. Mm. And so right around the time that I got this pilot episode back that I had been working on, I was taking this little weekend workshop at NYU that was basically just this crash course in audio where I was tasked with hitting the streets. I had like an hour and a half to collect footage. And then I had to come back and piece a story out of that. And that little piece that I did that I had basically about a day to work on, had so much more resonance okay. than, and life and vibrancy to it than what I had spent months working on. And I heard that and I thought to myself, well, I really need to learn much more about audio production before I can take on a project that is as ambitious as this. And okay. I thought to myself, well, you know, it's not as exotic as Mexico, but Texas is warm during January. And if there's one thing I know, Texas people 
love to talk and they tell good stories. And so I decided to go down there to see what stories I could unearth. I really didn't know if it would become a series, but I was just kind of curious to to teach myself more about it. And I had two ideas. I knew about this uh, bar in Austin that's trapped in time called uh, the Dry Creek Cafe. Nice. And I was also curious to do a piece uh, in East Austin. Um, East Austin is a historic Black community. Now it's, of course, you know, changed completely. People line up. There's a barbecue restaurant in East Austin called Franklin's that people line up for hours and clamor for this barbecue. But nobody seems to remember that for years prior to that restaurant's opening, there was another restaurant there called Ben's Long Branch uh, that was around for about 40 years and you never had to deal with a line. And huh. so I wanted to, so my idea was I I guess I wanted to go to these places to explore the broader cultural histories that could be discovered when you right. go find these places that are kind of under the radar. You don't read about them in glossy magazines. And those were the two ideas that I had. And at that point, it the, the project very it, it started to evolve very quickly. I, you know, stepped back, I said, what is it that these two places that I visited have in common? And I said, well, well, first of all, the episodes themselves, they're really kind of snapshots of places. What's that? That's a postcard. And what do these places have in common? They're really kind of the last of their kind. They might be on their way out. You don't know how much longer they have. Yeah. And so that is how I came up with the title of Vanishing Postcards. Yeah. Uh, since then, I have uh, created 15 episodes. I've probably logged about 1,500 miles across the, the state of Texas. Wow. And it's, again, I said it launched, it, it just launched. And it's it's been a solo road trip up until this point. And so I really look forward to being able to invite other people now to join me on this ride. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Because as a Texan, a proud Texan, as you said, it's interesting that you're going back there to sort of glean the history of that state that I we were talking before, I think is a little misunderstood by other states. Like I lived in Dallas for five years, never saw myself living in Texas, even though my grandmother's from there. I've visited several times. It just never, it, it never lured me in. And yet I loved it. I loved it. Like the people are genuine and friendly. And like you said, they will tell you a story. <laughs> they will sit down. And the thing about America, uh, I'm sure that you've seen this juxtaposed to Mexico is people move around so much. And so we lose a lot of our culture in the history. Cause like you said, people don't remember because they're probably all new and that's sad. So I love that you're documenting that. Well, thank you. And I, I do think kind of jumping off of what you just talked about here, I think that distance and being away from it absolutely has given me perspective. Okay. If I was still in Austin, had I never left Austin, I would be there bitter and complaining about how much the city has changed. It is a right. completely different city than the one that I grew up in. Absolutely. But I can go back there and recognize the beauty that is still there. Uh, but in addition to that, whenever you know an old institution closes, be it in Austin or be it in New York City, you will always have these people come out of the woodwork and you know they'll start moaning and talking about how, how horrible this is. But a question that I really have for those folks is, well, when was the last time you actually went there? 
Right. And so a real purpose of this series is to shine a light on what is left. And mm-hmm. I mean, people lose sight of, of, of how hard it is to keep some of these, an old bar or a dance hall running. And they need patronage. And if we don't support these places, they will go away. Yes. I mean, I, you, you talk about the dance hall. I think that's the first, is that the very first episode or is that the first episode? The, I first, to? the first episode is the episode about the, the dry Creek. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't, you know, each, each episode is self-contained and works yeah. on its own terms. So you can kind of, you can kind of pick and choose if you're moved to do so. Yeah. But the dance hall episode, I was running around during spring break I think I was picking up pizza and listening to it. And it was just like, it drew you in to this dance hall where these people have grown up in the same place. And I can't relate to that. I've moved around so much, but the desire to be like, oh, had I known about this place, I would love to go. I I can't even imagine, I I wouldn't know how to even dance (laughs) their dances, but I'm sure the older men would be completely willing to teach me, you know, like what an amazing night to go and be around people who still have a heritage, like coming back from the Czech Republic, maybe it wasn't even called that back then, you know, and they, you can hear the musical instruments. What am I trying to think of the the accordion, like you could hear like, oh my gosh, it was so amazing. I think that's so much better than binging suits again. <laughs> well, I'm a total binge watcher too. So that has its, <laughs> that has its place as well. Make, make no mistake. But Sepsha Hall is indeed an incredibly special place. It, it really is. You go there, you will hear many of these old uh, people converse with one another in Czech still. Wow. It's still, it's still there. And it really is in, in Texas, there, there we are privileged that we, we do still have many dance halls left, but few operate as regularly as that one. And dance halls like Green Hall or Lukenbach are the ones that get all of the attention. Mm. But that one is is so special because of the history, the generational history that it represents. You go there, the people have been going there for generations and it's still going, which is just a treasure. Yeah. It's amazing. And and we need to not let go of that. I think that as America sort of flies forward, cause we're, we're Americans, we gotta be innovative. We're pioneers. Go, 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 go towards the future. But we lose a lot. And I hear from my European friends, I lived there for 10 years, you know, like, what's your culture? Like, do you even have one? And I'm like, yeah, what is it? But then you hear something like Vanishing Postcards and you think, okay, there is culture. We're just too busy almost to recognize it. And I think it, your, your project is a great way to maybe encourage other people to go into where, you know, some, a place that's special to them and find those nuggets that you found. Absolutely. And and a goal that I do have, if I am able to swing it, is I would love to expand the map beyond Texas because these stories are all over this country. I would love to be able to drive Route 66 from Oklahoma to California 
and see what stories can be discovered along the way. I would love to go to a, I've never been there. I would love to go to a place like Bakersfield, California to explore. Bakersfield produced so many incredible musical artists. I would love to explore the honky-tonk history there. I would love to go to Mississippi. Mississippi Mm. is one of those places where the past is always invading the present. In addition to which they they produced the most incredible body of writers. Mississippi is America's Ireland. There are stories that can be done right here in New York. There are stories that can be done in Michigan. There are stories all over, there, there are people in places all over this country that you're not going to see about on Instagram or you're going to read about in Condé Nast that are absolutely deserving of attention. Yes, yes. It's looking for those stories, I think, in in finding the beauty outside of what seems to have invaded us these days of the bickering and the politics and seeing the beauty of America as the individuals who have gone through stuff and seen stuff and been part of radical change for the better is amazing. Absolutely. And I do believe that culture is something that provides an opportunity to bridge gaps. Yeah. Through culture, people can have a shared experience that brings people together. And in this divided age, I I really do believe it is important that we seek opportunities like that out. Yeah. So what was it like? um, How did you find all these different places? I mean, I know you grew up in Texas, but did you know exactly the the 15 points you were going to in the beginning? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. I let one idea guide me to another. And so what it really was is what happened is I started pre-COVID and then after the pandemic hit, that definitely changed a lot of what I could, what I could do and explore and whatnot. But it was like, okay, so I did this, I did this piece on the old bar. I did this piece on barbecue and I thought, you know, I should find a dance hall. What Mm. dance halls are around? I had never been to Sepshikol. I I really hadn't heard of it until a few days that I went, until, you know, maybe like three days before I went up. Um, I'd never really explored that region of Central Texas. And so I, I went there, I did that, and I thought, okay, well, so now I have a dance hall. I should probably see, what is a honky tonk? How is a honky tonk different from a dance hall? Right. Discover well a dance hall. That's where you take your family. A honky tonk. That's where you take your date. And so <laughs> I went to uh, Bandera. This fabulous. Uh, the next episode that will be well, actually it'll be released by the time people hear this. I did this uh, segment on this uh, honky tonk in the small town called Bandera, called Archie Blue's Silver Dollar. Had a great time talking to people there. Then I'm like, well, let's check out and see, you know, towns have all sorts of interesting museums. So mm-hmm. I went to a number of different little museums, kind of obscure places uh, to, to examine. In Houston, they have what are called ice houses. Ice houses kind of were like 7-Eleven actually started off as an ice house. Okay. Basically, there were places where people would go to to get ice in the 1920s. And because it was cooler there, people would end up drinking beer. And they they became kind of like these tavern slash convenience stores. And there are still a few left in in Houston. I did one there. I did a piece on Galveston, exploring the the gambling history and 
Galveston back in the, the 50s and for about 30 years before then was just a, a precursor to Las Vegas. And so really, it's just like one idea led to another. It's where can I go? What place haven't I explored? Where are the good stories? And so it's really, that's kind of how everything evolved. I, right. I did not have a clear roadmap, but I kind of thought, okay, I haven't covered this yet. What should I be talking about? Do we need something funny now? That's really how the whole season came together. That's cool. How how was it trying to get the stories out of people? Did were you ever met with like why why do you want our story or were people always willing to share it? Well, I mean it's it's interesting. And as I referenced earlier, the the pandemic certainly changed a That's lot. That's true. Um, like the the first episode that I did at the the Dry Creek Cafe, I showed up at the place completely unannounced with my microphone. Um, I also, and, and, and I showed up and, and I had called for perception call. I had actually given them a phone call in advance and I had spoken with the owner, Alice, who was a 89 year old, the 89 year old. And the day I, and the day I showed up there, I said, well, where's Alice? And they said, well, she took a fall and we had to take her to the emergency room. So they didn't have a clue that I was going to show up. Oh, either. wow. But I always find that in situations like that, I'm usually much more nervous and self-conscious than the people that I go up to and approach. Okay. And I mean, it was funny too, in the, the dance hall piece, I mean, I, I walked in the door, I had my headphones, I had this long microphone and there was this elderly man who came up. He's like, what do you have there? And I started talking to him. Turned out he was about to turn 100 years old. He went there every Sunday he was proud to tell me that one night he'd recently danced with 32 women. Oh, he'd been through, he, he had survived Normandy. And so you just wow. never know who you're going to, to meet. Um, now, of course, after the pandemic hit, I could no longer just go up to people and start talking to them. And I really had to plan things out okay. in advance. I, I no longer had that luxury. There were some places you would reach out to, you just wouldn't hear back. Um, but for the most part, with these places, I found that people were very eager to share their stories, that people were very excited to get the attention. I mean, what right. I one of um, the most moving experiences that I had, I knew that I wanted to do some stories in South Texas. Um, South Texas usually gets kind of a short end of the stick. People beyond you know, San Antonio is maybe the gateway to South Texas. People really don't go much further down to the valley or places like that. I wanted to do a piece on border culture. Hmm. Uh, and one of the great quintessential Texas, not just Texas, but American art forms that you will find is conjunto music, which is a form of music that is that evolved on the border when you know, the, the Mexican migrants and the Tejanos, they heard the music that was brought over by the Czechs and the Germans, and they started singing these ballads in their own language and incorporated a guitar and all of this. And I, so I knew I wanted to do a piece on Conjunto. I discovered that there was a place in this small town called San Benito, which is maybe like about 20 miles north of the border. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there... They, they had the uh, Texas Conjunto Music Hall of Fame. And so I reached out to them, unbeknownst to me, the man who had opened uh, this and founded this museum had died just a few months prior. 
but I got in touch with his son. His son heard that I was interested. We arranged a time for, for me to come. I showed up that morning. His entire family was there. Oh, wow. um, and he had also gotten in touch with a, a producer by the name of Rick Garcia, who ran a whole record label devoted to conjunto artists. And they had such pride and honor that someone took the time to, to learn about this incredible art form that this region produced and took an interest in this museum that their father had built. Yeah. And that's an experience that I will always take with me wherever I go. Yeah. That's got to feel amazing to know that you're, you're documenting history. You're documenting stories that a lot of us have no idea. My grandmother spent most of her time growing up in the Valley. It was a much different culture than what we hear about on the news much different. You know, her best friend was Mexican heritage. There was a lot of collaboration. You know, these days we hear everybody hates each other, but it really wasn't like that before. And I still didn't know that a lot of the heritage was German heritage. Like it just didn't occur to me that the Germans and the Poles and the Czechs would go all the way down to that hot weather. So very different from where they came from, you know, and I think it's a testament to humans as they're pioneering this thing and they're getting together and they're, they're sharing their music to make a whole new genre of music. That That's amazing. Well, I mean, it is to, I owe the gift of life to people like that as well. I mean, the reason that I am Texan is because back in the 1840s, when Texas was a republic, you know, some of my ancestors in Germany said, hey, we, we need a new start. And yeah. they traveled from Germany to Texas and they, they bought a farm and that's what they did. I myself, I'm a city person through and through, but I take great comfort in, in knowing where my people came from yeah. and will always be grateful to them for the sacrifices that, that they made. Yeah. Um, the, it, privileges, the privileges that I enjoy. Right. I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. Yeah. And it's always good to see the good that our ancestors did. I mean, it's always good to to critique what they didn't do right, you know, to always sort of review how we can do a little bit better, but it's good to review what they did right and what they did well. I mean, as somebody who has switched countries, I respect immigrants, like getting up and leaving your country is no joke. If you've never done it, you can, you know, we can gloss over it. Like it's not a big deal, especially in the 1840s when you're on a boat. No, (laughs) no. Whatever truck you had. No, well, this country wouldn't exist without people like that, unless you are a Native American, unless you, you are of Native American ancestry. We are here either because our people were immigrants, refugees, or slaves. That's it. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And, and we should go back and see how they got along, what they did right, what they did wrong. So I, I think that's really amazing. I can't wait for that episode. I had no idea about that, the conjunto music. And I wish that my grandma was still alive. I could have had you interview her. <laughs> so I, I take it you really enjoyed this journey of going to Texas and sort of your home state and learning more about it. Was was a lot of it stuff you knew or did you learn a lot of new things on the way? 
I learned a lot of new things along the way. I mean, I I did have the benefit, being from there, I knew the landscape. Mm. So I definitely had a lot of ideas, but many of these places I'd never been to. And it really did give me the opportunity to explore and get to know corners of Texas I'd never been to before or would have necessarily considered visiting. Right, right. And have you done that much writing and storytelling before? Like, did you write out what you were going to ask or did you sort of fly by the seat of your pants? Because listening to the episode, it sounds, I mean, the people you interviewed does not sound scripted, but it is professionally scripted. You know, it's almost like a movie. I could see it in my head as I was listening to it. So how much work went into that? Well, I would always try to do some, you know, pre- interview research, definitely. But the most important thing for me is I try to ask questions Mm. that will get people to tell stories. And Mm -hmm. you do that by asking specific questions. And for a lot of these places that I would visit, you know, if I was talking to many different people, a lot of the times I would ask them the same questions to see what responses that I could get. But there's a believe me, there is a lot left on the the cutting room floor. I mean, in some cases, I might talk to people for for over an hour, and you know, you might not even hear a minute of of what was said. I don't know that I could ever really do an interview based show like what you might hear from Terry Gross or something like that, because I'm really just kind of more interested in just talking to people and just seeing what kind of comes out organically. Right. And then I step back, I take a look at the points, the stories that were told, and I see how I can weave them together into a cohesive whole. Okay. Um, writing definitely is the most challenging part of the, the process. But usually in post-production, you discover that there is a roadmap for you that yeah. you just have to, to decipher. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I assemble these these works. Do you think your work in theater kind of helped where you could kind of see how it would be staged? Well, I certainly do believe that, I, as I said earlier, I've done a lot of writing in the cabaret world mm-hmm. where, and when I'm putting together a cabaret program, I do believe that what is said in between the songs is crucial. In, in many okay. ways, it is absolutely, it is every bit as important as the songs themselves, because if you can tell a story that precedes the song, it just illuminates everything. Yeah, And so that definitely prepared me in that sense. I have tried playwriting before. People are always telling me you should write a play. And I've tried, maybe I will get around to it at some point, but I I am a much stronger, I, I do think, I am a good writer, but I'm much stronger as an essayist than I am a dramatist. Mm. Yeah. I mean, every type of writing takes a certain knack. I mean, Mm -hmm. everything can be learned, but hey, you could write a play about Texas. It would be interesting to see how New York would receive it because here in DC, I've, every time I said, where'd you move from Texas? I get a, hmm. Oh, yeah. everyone, everyone has a different idea. They don't it's want to still, say it. It still happens. But of course, now Texas is hot and everybody's moving there. So <laughs> things true. evolve, things change. It's so funny. It's just a, it's just a place. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny thing. Uh, but you could definitely write 
a play, you could, you could be all of the characters. You can yeah. be Alice. You can be the hundred year old man. <laughs> well, for now, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, we'll, we'll, let's let's we'll, we'll get there after we get through. After let's we get, get through one this project season. and then get yeah, exactly, exactly, one well, step at a time. So it just launched in April, correct? Correct. Yes. All right. And how often are the episodes coming out? So the plan is uh, we're going to release twice a month. Mm-hmm. Kind of the the reason for that is it just kind of gives us more opportunity to build an audience mm-hmm. and explore press and PR opportunities with each episode. Ideally, if um, we can get this to a place where there is enough interest and attention, it, it, it will give me some more time to work on a season two. But as I said, there are 15 episodes. There are also a few bonus uh, segments that you can expect, uh, but we will right. be releasing twice a month. You can find it on Apple. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And obviously, I would be most honored if uh, if anyone listening could subscribe. Give it a listen. Yes. Subscribing is important, especially on Apple. It's how they rank us. So <laughs> please subscribe, y'all. So. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe. And so is there any place that you're gaining support other places. Is that a sentence? Is there any place that if people want to support this endeavor and maybe support towards a second season, are you going to set anything up that they can do that? I think in the future, uh, there probably will be a, a Patreon of some sort established. Um, at this stage, though, I am most interested in building an interest and community in this project before I reach that, that step. Okay. In the future, that will likely happen. But right now, it's it's really just the podcast. Uh, but you can also, if, if you're interested in learning more uh, about the show, seeing some companion photos, additional stories, you can find us on Instagram at uh, vanishing underscore postcards. Just search awesome. vanishing postcards and it should come up on it. It should come up, yes. So for right now, we're just growing the community of vanishing postcards. If anyone likes storytelling, which I'm obsessed with, it's an incredible show. And I think it's such a refreshing thing to listen to between all of my business and my writing podcast. And then you got to get some, you know, news in there. And then I'm like, oh, let's just listen to a story. <laughs> yeah. It's intended as a breather. So yes. I, I like to say that, you know, if you, uh, you know, it, it, it's, if you need a breather, but you don't have the time or luxury of hitting the open road, it's a good thing to kick back and listen to. You can, you can consume it with morning coffee. You can yes. do it while you're kicking back with a glass of wine or bourbon. Or, you know, if you're navigating a commute, you just kind of need a break from, you know, what's surrounding you. It's something that you can just really kind of relax, ease into and enjoy. It absolutely is. And, you know, after a year of not being able to travel, it kind of almost feels like traveling at this point because we all forgot what that's like. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about Vanishing Postcards. I'm really excited about it as somebody who believes everyone has a story. I'm glad that you're out there and documenting people's stories because I think it's important to do that. Well, Kat, it's been a tremendous honor. I thank you so much for your interest. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? 
It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.